Esoterica and the Future Past Lives with their new release, Bone Dust. I wish I died a martyr for my cause and leave you all behind. But I spit on this country. You. Mean. Shit. You would rape me and kick me. I don't have any respect for you. You can respect me now with all my bombs, knights and angels. But other than that you have no loyalty, courage or faith you believe anything if it was given to you. You're vacuum subjects. You've proven that and I loathe you. You can scuffle around the truth a thousand times to save your neck and your pathetic job. You'll grow out of it sometime but I have seen your stupidity. I have been thrown in the deepest despairs for it. She can't have her dotation. She is also just like me. No. She wouldn't say that. Look more carefully. She is not also just like you. She is a princess like millions here. The rest is just babble. Aristocracy is a poem, a whim. Destiny also involved faith and exceptionalism. Poems. Exceptionalism, the lack of equality, visions and voices they are more beautiful than subjects. Joan of Arc was more beautiful than subjects. Therefore it is true. If anyone would see me evidence of dying for the imagination, from inspirations gathering with angels, then it is her, and as a poem it is also part of reality. And I bent here too. And now the world you will build is better with deities. It is part of romance, a new romance. Not a religion but a faith solely based on the aesthetics. Because aesthetics have to be true. And therefore God or ether if it's just fantasy but it is in reality. So again, Victor Orta already said it. Where the minds are small and the hearts sometimes, and very often actually, are even smaller sometimes I wish I was out of here. But I had angels sent from abroad to make my life more pleasurable than at least among the most saturated and mediocre civil class ever devised. That betrayed and in which rock grew surrealists aesthetics and me. Those at the top will understand that. You rabble underneath I will vomit on. And then you can grow stronger at last from your disgust and from your hysteria, cry a thousand desperate cries, and be scuffled off with the vermin. Or you can grow a stomach and learn to understand the principle at stake. Those who protect me now will know this. And what do I reward you with? Art Nouveau, Art Deco, New Baroques, thousands of paintings, of 20 meters high. And what did you say when it mattered? You are just a subject, I don't believe in God or Joan of Arc, nor in mass consumption. I believe in minimalism and that you can have a thousand and just consume and watch a painting and never be moved, for none of it is Troy. No painting moves for real, not a landscape will be saved daily to principles, in fact this world is just relative. Nothing is real. Ha! I caught you. And so glad I did. I heard just about every voice you can think of. And I still believe it's just a Sid E effect of my belief in beauty. Others may be more superstitious. If I don't believe in anything, I will forever be alone. So I believe in beauty, and no god or Joan of Arc or Saint Eulalia is not naturally part of that. No pride or joy could ever be taken away from me. 
if I had my own mind staked on that. And to you apparently that is just subjective. To me it is very subjective. And yes, words are just means to an insight. Alone they mean nothing. And when I ponder, in 2000 years these words to me will mean nothing. Nothing but a distant joke. One more line out of an archaic podcast to another future. The imagination carried me out of your past towards any stars and opportunity. And only in that and immortality lied the exquisite happiness. And now you can have it all. But by far and by God you will not all have my respect. I loathe you. I treat you fair. If you were seated here, you wouldn't do so well. And I wish you treated me. The way I would treated and served. Myself. That is fair to expect. So that is a fair deal. Five minutes past twelve midnight. Hi, Captain Stubing. Howard Gopher and Doc. How do you feel? How do you feel? I do not understand the question. From Sacramento, the heart of California, and around the world, Genuine Modern Radio. Radio Flom. So I think if you're going to be on Instagram, follow as many people as you can. And it leads to a really diverse feed. And right now at Flamus, we've hit a limit. We can't follow more than 7,500 accounts. Like I could even see all of them. But in my feed last week, I saw this beautiful short film called Courage by Patrick Knott. So I, I had to send a note. Hello, Courage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Courage, short film that we did uh, here in Beaubouchet, we are an experimental center in France, to celebrate somehow the anniversary, the 100 years of the Bauhaus. We commissioned this work, uh-huh. a Spanish designer called Pat- Patrick Knott. The film has to be recorded here in Beaubouchet. So the idea is like the theme for this year was Bauhaus. Also with uh, another point of view, no, not, not only like a celebration. So ideas about sustainability, ideas about new cultures or how to how the the Bauhaus or will understand today's in in on the occasion of the of the summer program we just launched this short film to reflect together with the director Patrick Knott about the Bauhaus 
in an artistic way or with a, let me say to show Babouchette I mean the all the landscape and all the background that you see is part of the Babouchette what really caught my eye is I'm teaching a film mm -hmm. editing class right now we're spending a lot of time going through early cinema mm -hmm. I'm watching this thing and I'm seeing a lot going on here from Kabuki mm -hmm. theater to surrealism it's it's not just another little Bauhaus piece. It starts like a fashion mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, you can find a lot of influence in these little films from Japanese Kabuki theater. Also, there is like a big influence of uh, Segundo de Chomón, the Spanish director, and with the narrative in a less traditional way, let's say. The center itself, when I'm reading it, it sounds like it was a property that was purchased in order to support the arts. Mm -hmm. Well, the center was founded in almost 30 years ago by Alexander Bobejesak. He was the former director of the Vitra Design Museum. Vitra Design Museum is uh, one of the biggest design museums in the world. So as a part of this, uh, of this, of the activities of the museum, he found also the Domaine de Babouchet. The idea was to mix design, architecture, top level, in the middle of the countryside. So also we, we have uh, agriculture, we have uh, different topics that make us uh, like multi multifaceted uh, uh, place. We are a center open to all different kind of profiles, different kind of backgrounds, different kind of uh, education experience, and also work experience. So we have mainly uh, architects and designers. This is a fact. But we had also dentists. We have people who work with flower. We have people who work in theater. We have people who, who work with doing masks. I mean, and I think this is part of the regional of the richness of, of, of this of this place. So how it works? Normally, uh, you can book one of our, or you can apply for one of our workshops. This is normally, you pay a fee and you, uh, you stay one week here together with all the community. But as we know, it's not so easy for all the people. We have also scholarships for US students, also in cooperation with Wanted Design. Education is like a business here, so it's it's really, really expensive. And uh, I was looking at a, uh, I'm also a font designer, so I was looking at a typography master's in England, and I was like, is that all it costs? That is so inexpensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We try to do our best. We have another scholarship for, uh, well, it's worldwide, and this is called, it's our residency program. Mm -hmm. So we invite uh, John designers, your architects, but also different kind of profiles to uh, send a submission related with the motto of the season. This this uh, season, the motto is making history, uh, a curriculum for a new Bauhaus. And well, we received like almost 100, 150 applications from all over the world with people showing the, how the Bauhaus influenced their career or their work. So all the workshops for this year will be related with the Bauhaus centenary. I mean, the idea like to experience hands-on experience, to go close with, with the materials that are surrounding us. U.S. is our third country in number of bookings. So I think we are, we are weaving a huge connection also with the States. We, we help also with the travel expenses that also 
also, and last but not least, we have also uh, we call like a staff program. So people is just coming here to help with different activities or helping in the workshop or helping uh, with the media team or helping different and in exchange they, they have uh, a workshop, a voucher for a workshop. So at the end, the idea is to bring all this creative attitude, all these creative people from all over the world to France. How can we follow you? You can follow us on Instagram, arroba uh, You can follow us on Facebook, arroba And you can check all the summer workshop in our website, www.bobuchet.org where you can find more than 30 different workshops for design, architecture, theater, filmmaking, and more, like in the Bauhaus and under the Bauhaus spirit. Cool. Over here, we do a blog post for every one of these Radio Flom episodes on our Der Tongue blog. So if you head over to www.flom.us slash lovingradioflom, you can see this short experimental Bauhaus tribute. It's a really beautiful piece. Radio Flom. Founded 1923. Bauhaus without the house. And now, Jenny Soto. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. When feeling out of sight, for the ends of being and ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need, by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life. And if God choose, I shall put love thee better after death. Before Bugs Bunny, after William Shakespeare, and before the question, how do I love thee, made it into our cultural lexicon. It was part of a poem, number 43, written by Victorian poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning in 1850 as part of a deception. Elizabeth claimed that 43 was written by someone else, in Portuguese, and translated into English, when actually she wrote them all in English, while finishing off a bottle of port wine. Port wine. Her husband, Robert Browning, used to refer to her as his little Portuguese in private, which is just so darling. And these sonnets, 44 total, from sonnets from the Portuguese, were written to proclaim her love for him. Why the duplicity? Well, women were not allowed to write back then, ever. Well, there's Frankenstein. And Jane Austen, who wrote the Clueless movie. And a few others whose names you probably don't even know. Like imagine some of the things they could say. 
about equal rights, the right to vote, the pasty white asshats who run Alabama, just capitalism in general. Like, why is everyone in like positions of power have to be white? Maybe they should just try a little something else, spice it up. But everybody knows they can't handle their spice. Oh, that's probably why, huh? Solve that little issue that probably doesn't need to be solved, but very much so does because capitalism. How do I love thee? Tries to define that almost impossible thing to define. Love. With a list. That things can work great if you're standing outside a window, dressed up as John Cusack holding up a boombox. How do I love thee? Is also the forerunner of a very popular and similar question. How do you feel? A term that has freaked out every romantic encounter on the first date for a very, very, very long time. No one ever mentions the love boat used to use the Futura black font in the credits. The what? All right, ladies and gentlemen, do not forget to miss the Sacramento Podcast Festival. It is going to be on May 31st through June 2nd, and Flom will be performing at 11 p.m. on Friday, May 31st. Make sure you're there and don't miss it, or else. Radio Flom at Sackbot Fest. May 31st at 11 p.m. We will do a live recording. Do not forget to miss... I cannot believe he said that. Info at sackpotfest.com The universe chose us. I feel good with you. I feel good without you. Our bodies smell mixed together. It's like a perfect perfume. We enjoy this perfume. We drink this perfume. We sleep with this perfume. We give this perfume to others. We go far from each other, far away. We go to explore this world. In the end, we will stay together like from the beginning. And here is a brand new release, Lauren Rocket's cover of Echo, the Bunnymen's classic track, The Killing Moon.
Month, Radio Flum Steve Mahalo dropped in on the Love event at Hacker Lab in Sacramento. I'm here with Laura Anthony. Tell me something, Laura. I'm just super excited to be the new art curator for Hacker Lab Midtown. Um, I am the founder of Artists of Sacramento, and my main goal in life is to bring artists together to give them education, amplification, and advocation. Well, here's a hard question What is Sacramento doing art wise that no one else is doing? Um, I, I, to be honest, don't know yet. That would be, I would say, um, there's a lot of incubation, a lot of lifting, but, you know, that's pretty much any good art scene, Yeah. you know? It's a lot different than it used to be here. Yeah, Yeah. yes, I would notice in the the past decade alone that things have ramped up, people have been more supportive, less jealous, a little bit more uh, collaborative over competitive. Yeah. Lots of cross-pollination. We've t- yeah, we, we've talked a lot about the, this town sort of breeds clicks. Yes. And kind of what I've been doing is I just sort of swoop in and try to get people from different groups yes. together. And what are you doing right now? Right now I am setting up for the sec- first second Saturday event that we've done at Hacker Lab and Artists of Sacramento is one of the proud sponsors here. And um, our event tonight is maker-oriented, so most of the art that you see tonight is made by makers across all mediums from cutting edge to traditional. And who did your awesome logo? 
Rosara Unangst, who is a wonderful ally and advocate. Um, she donated the logo to us. She has a company called Pigment and Parchment. And she was our very first feature when we started Artists of Sacramento just as an Instagram feature kind of thing. She was our very first person. It was really fun. And are you doing this every month now? Yes, every single month. We have a new theme every month. Follow Artists of Sacramento on Instagram. We have monthly calls for art across all mediums. And you're also on Facebook. Yes, so. we're on Facebook as well. You want to say anything, Cody? Uh, I'm just real happy to be here and that things are going well. <laughs> We, are been, they really going well? Because usually been, everything only, falls apart. We've really only had a couple of snafus. We had a taco truck cancel. Oh, that happened to me once. printer was out of ink. There's just a couple little things like that. But really, we've, we're still open. We're still on time. At least they told you they canceled. Yeah. They uh, yeah. gave us several hours notice. Yeah. And, it wasn't, and it wasn't like a flaky <laughs> thing. It was a maintenance thing with their truck. So, yeah. Cool. We look forward to having them out again. Santos, I'm modeling jewelry from Gianna Galati, also known as Vivid Venus. Is that you over here? Yes. I make metalwork, uh, jewelry. I also make sculptures, and my sculpture designs kind of portray what I make as my jewelry as well. Oh, my name's Ashley, and I'm also modeling jewelry Gianna's. And my name's Maddie, and I am also modeling Gianna's wonderful jewelry. How do we find you? At vividvenus.com. Okay. Yeah. Do you have Instagram and all that? Instagram is Vivid Venus. So yeah, pretty easy to find. My name is Jenny Lynn and I'm a local artist myself and so being able to be here to showcase my friends' art is a really great opportunity. I love Hacker Lab, so that's why I'm here. And I hear there's gonna be shows every month. There are. I know I will probably be here in May for the mental health awareness art piece. Oh, yes. So I'm really excited for that.
was Seed Light with There Were Only Shadows. This San Francisco-based group's first EP, Grass Stains and Novocaine, will be out June 7, 2019 on the Emotional Response label. You're listening to Radio Flom. You know, working, working and living in San Francisco, I have so many friends that just are so stressed and so anxious all the time. And it's because they have these jobs that are, you know, they're working eight hours a day, but really they're working like 16, 20 hours a day because their, their bosses are emailing them and they're always on call. They're not doctors. They're, they're fucking software engineers. You know, it's not life or death. Like, get over it. Your, your company's never going to make money. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's not your company. So forget about it, you know? They're scared too. I think they're scared. I think they're scared to be like, just jump off the deep end and just you know, make them figure out what they want to do and, and make themselves happy like that. That's why you see a lot of people work in tech or work in uh, banking or something, and then they they make their money and they're just like, well, now I get to do what I want to do. Yeah. Like, oh, you could have done that all along. <laughs> old method of printing. We are fast approaching press time in the same way that Gutenberg. The first printer of the Western world did, more than five centuries ago. Reads back. Reads back. Yes, this printer has just finished makeup of a page. Radio Flom talks to James L. Tucker, owner of the Aesthetic Union, a letterpress print shop specializing in custom work and original editions. It's just a car ride from medieval to modern history. Courage and discipline are what you learn here. One of the reasons I'm talking to you is I've seen what comes out of your shop. You're putting out some really cool stuff. Oh, thanks. We got a, quite a few limited edition prints going on. Uh, I've been able to focus more on that over the past year by allowing myself to kind of delegate more tasks uh, for the commercial part of the work because that's really the bread and butter of the shop is, uh, you know, business cards and custom print and custom design. Um, and I was doing that all myself. So I didn't have a lot of time for limited edition prints, but those jobs have been coming in. Now I'm focusing on a big edition I'm doing with a photographer, um, doing some block printing over her photos. So we will digitally print on a indigo, uh, offset digital offset press it's a really great fidelity and then i'll go in carve some components of those uh, photos and, and print on top of it so i kind of got the idea from uh, a warhol warhol did a series of uh, photographic um, screen prints and then he would do a kind of a flat 3d or flat 2d uh, color on these um, black and white photos and um, i kind of took that and kind of extended it to to something what, what i would do in general, in my, in terms of my own prints, I have a couple more uh, uh, block print, like landscape prints coming out, and uh, some other things too. Just kind of really exploring um, what I can do with linoleum and using the letterpress. Um, just keep creating layer after layer and uh, doing a lot of reductive prints. It's really that's my fascination is like color, making my own ink, 
and we're using the letterpress to create something I haven't seen before. I, I didn't know you were mixing your own inks. So yeah. how, how do you get into that? Well, it was kind of a necessity because I was actually using the same commercial inks I was using for our uh, commercial side of the business and realizing that they weren't color fast. So it's like, well, <laughs> you know, my, my prints are reasonably, uh, you know, inexpensive in terms of artwork, you know, I'm always going to keep mm-hmm. them a hundred dollars on frames, 150 frames. Cause I want it to be an opportunity for someone to collect, you know, a handmade piece of art. And I think that's really important. Um, but I would be kind of pissed if I spent a hundred bucks and like two months later, my print has changed color or faded. And that's kind of what was happening. The first couple series I did, um, you know, I reached out to those people the people who I've had their information and just kind of like, Hey, you know, I'll credit you if you want. So what I found, we work with a company called case for making, which is out in the outer sunset and they actually make their own watercolors out of um, pigments, whether it be earth pigments or synthetic pigments, and they'll use a binder. So I, I knew how to mix ink and oil paint from uh, college from art school. Yeah. And I said, you know, I have all those pigments in my shop. They, they use my shop as a, a, a workplace, too, and they sell stuff in the front. I decided to uh, try to replicate my own ink. So get some linseed oil, get some magnesium, get some Japan dryer. And that's pretty much what's in ink. Just make it really thick. And let me tell you, like, the colors I get from mixing my own ink, it's not the colors that you see anywhere else uh, in the Pantone book at all. Just the texture, too. Like, if I don't grind and mull the ink... Um, a lot. I'll get this grainy texture that's amazing and just like the pigments just release when it's printing. So that's like another aspect I've added to my prints that makes them super special is you're, you're getting, you know, everything's handmade. I just have to start hand making the paper now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Oh, did a toilet paper factory explode? (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what it looks like, you know. So learning color theory in college is actually important. This is where this becomes realized. There's a book where Finlay's Color, A Complete History of the Palette. It's amazing. Yeah, I've read that book. So workshops. You're doing workshops, I see. Yeah, I'm doing workshops. And most of that, it's funny because people will come in and look, look for a letterpress workshop and you know, want to play around with type and stuff like that. And I actually, for a letterpress shop, we don't have that much type. You know, we rely a lot on photopolymer, a lot on mm-hmm. CNC routing plates, and a lot on linoleum blocks to create our images. So what I focus our workshop on, I'm, uh, I tell people before, you know, we're really focusing on color, overlapping color, and how, how to use letterpress these presses in different ways and if they want to play with type go to center for the book it's you know a few blocks away and they have a lot of type right around the corner yeah Yeah. (laughs) you know (laughs) but like you know this opens the door to a lot more people because they want to explore color and they don't have the knowledge of color in their life and everyone can use that whether they want to paint a room or you know uh arrange flowers or whatever you know um i wish more people were taught taught that flower arranging if you studied uh, japanese flower arranging that could be an art too right and it's like that there's different there's a difference between art craft and design and i really think of it as craft you really have a definitive of what's good craft and what's bad craft because like if this house is going to fall down that's probably bad craftsmanship right (laughs) so (laughs) or or if you're a if you're a figure drawing a figure drawer and in that figure drawing uh that you just did does not look like the person whatsoever. That's bad craft. Um, in design, 
there is some like leeway, right? Like it could be bad design. It could be good design, but everyone has their opinion on it for the most part. It's a little in between craft and art and art. It could be like, I could think it's horrible, but it could be good art, you know, cause it moves me. So all these things are interconnected because they're all, they all work with these visual things without learning crafts, design and art all together you're missing a giant part of that puzzle if you learn art without learning craft at all you're you're cheating yourself from what you could create with art if you learn design without crafts you have no idea what you can do with with design and that's kind of like part of the uh, functioning of this shop too is like show people the craft we know craft really well. We know art. We know design. And show, show them that they're integral parts of, uh, of the, whole, the whole look of it. Um, it's very important. Could you, could, could you imagine if your whole, if, if just think about how, how many years a Japanese flower arranger studies before they become a master of floral arrangement? It's not a year, you know? And we, we try to cram you know, all this craft into two semesters of the core year of college yeah. and have those people try to figure out what they want to do with their lives. It's just, it's total nonsense. Yeah. The, the side discussion is I'm opening a school next year. I hope you're teaching craft. <laughs> and uh, yeah. my specialty is beginning courses. A lot of it's based on the Bauhaus, yes. but it, it's more the concept learning is a lifelong thing that's that's a term that comes up a lot and i'm doing this stuff now because i i realized i kept seeing my students go off and learn new stuff that i was never doing and i was like well wait a minute just because i'm a teacher doesn't mean i have to not explore filmmaking not explore sound mixing not mm-hmm. explore photography i used to hire photographers because i was yeah. a great photographer yeah i shoot all my own stuff now because uh, I played with Instagram for several years. I'm convinced anyone who practices something can actually get good at it. They may not get great, but if they continually practice it, they'll get good oh, at yeah. it. Is, and some people are more apt to get things than other people, right? Um, yeah. You know, it's the same thing. If I look if I look beyond craft and art and design, if I look at, like, finance, you know, I've had to learn some bits and parts of finance for running a business, and I got good at it. I'm not great at it because I'm not, my mind doesn't work that way, you know, or I convinced myself my yeah. mind doesn't really work that way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, as soon as you say you can't do something, it's all over. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can add in some tracks and I can, I can look at a bank account. So that's pretty good. Right. <laughs> is it, is it my favorite thing? No, I rather hire someone, a subcontractor to do it sometime. But like, um, you know, I've, Every year I'm in business, I get a little better at it. And just like you with your, you know, photography or whatever, you can do it. It's just, uh, it's just practicing all the time. Yeah. Do, do what you enjoy doing. That's the message. You don't even have yeah. to listen to the rest of our episodes. It's been the thing that's been a thread going through uh, our two seasons so far. I really enjoy how you set up your business. You are making this work. How are you making it work? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I didn't go to school for business or anything like that. So it's, uh, it's, I'm just learning. I'm reading some good 
business books that I thought the people who wrote them would be kind of like in the same mindset I'm in. So creative business books. I met a lot of great business people in San Francisco that are running small shops. And I kind of like see what those shops are doing and how, what to mimic and what to uh, not mimic in those shops. And also, you know, I worked in a lot of uh, production before. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of what helps is, you know, I haven't gone to a business school, so I'm not looking at necessarily the bottom line of things. I'm price conscious about stuff, but I've worked in a lot of, I've worked in almost every uh, capacity that my employees are working in now. So I know what is stressful and what sucks. And I want to make sure that it doesn't suck for them. And so, you know, (laughs) and just putting, and just putting, putting people first, you know, especially the customer too, you know, like um, if, if I'm out there looking out for them and I can save them some money and take a hit, on the first job and they just keep coming back to me because I know they know I'm honest and, um, they grow. Um, then it's best, better for me. I'm looking at the job board right now, uh, that we have up and we have, most of those people are returning customers because we just, we've just been good to them. Good and honest and, and, uh, you know, yeah, good business. I, I mean, I also make it work through, um, you know, having the rent I do, uh, San Francisco is very, very high priced rent and, uh, heat ceramics have been really instrumental in keeping my rent down. They own the building. And so they charge me, um, a great industrial square footage or like manufacturing square footage and they don't gouge me on the price. So I can survive, which is awesome. Um, and you know, when I started this business, I wanted to have a retail uh, component too to get people in the shop and show uh, them ha- what letterpress is, why it's more expensive, why they should spend the money on us, and that's been working too. So it's this this whole kind of culmination of things that we're making it work, and and also just making it also just kind of like being really thrifty too. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to spend my money on wisely. And that comes from being really raised by my grandmother who grew up in the great depression. And she was just like, I don't have a dryer. Cause I have, you know, I have the air outside. Why would I have a dryer? You know? So it's been like living my life in San Francisco like that for a long time, you know? So um, um, yeah. I relate so much to that. Um, yeah. I had older, I have older parents. My mother is 88 right now. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. And uh, my dad was merchant Marines world oh, war yeah. two. So he knew how to play games. He knew how yeah. to get his hands on stuff. Uh, yeah. Very cheap. And it, it's a giant Tetris game. And mm-hmm. I would, I went from being an art director into teaching, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, I would say, a huge salary cut. Yeah. And uh, just the game of learning to survive on very little money is really interesting. But I can tell you, it's a lot of fun yeah. doing what you enjoy and then mm-hmm. playing this little game of, well, we can't afford this. We can't afford that. We can't do <laughs> yeah. this. And uh, it's better with money, but uh, I can tell you I've got really good at cooking on very little money. Uh, And my diet has improved immeasurably. I I was just going to say, some of the healthiest people in medieval times were uh, the peasants because they actually ate more healthy than the the royalty. Yeah. 
So you know what? Cook those lentils. They're good for you. I know. Uh, <laughs> you can either get a job what you hate to do and probably get paid a lot and hate your life every, you know, from nine to five going to work. And then the weekends you're just standing in line for brunch or you could, uh, you can love what you do every day and, um, not get paid that much, but it makes certain circumstances, make certain sacrifices. Um, but you're happy every day for the most part, right? It's still a mindset. Sometimes I'm miserable, here. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but at least I'm not, at least I'm not like going to Facebook every day and selling my soul for that corrupt thing or like, uh, you know, something like that. You know, I can, I can live with myself at the end of the day and that's, what's important. I thought about that for a long while. Like what, what kind of, what do we have to do to make, what can we do to make the world a better place in terms of, uh, making people happier? And I really feel it's, uh, it's if people, if people did what they liked instead of what they thought they had to do, um, I think people would be a little happier. People would be a little, little less aggressive, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, you know, we wouldn't have to probably spend that much on therapists. You know, communication is really important. Um, I'm really happy to be a letterpress printer now in the present moment, not 50 years ago, mostly cause I would be printing shit jobs <laughs> and like probably newspapers. Uh, but I get to work on cool stuff now. But also I get to communicate, you know, uh, I've had a lot of, I had some letterpress jobs when I first moved here in San Francisco in 2007. And I was like, oh, it would be so cool to put a live feed in the shop just so, so people can just watch people work. Yeah. And they thought I was all nuts. And they just were like, no, they wound up firing me oh. <laughs> because I just had all and so like now i have my own shop so i could do that you know we don't have like a live camera going on all the time but you know instagram stories uh always helps like people see the behind the scenes thing if people are in san francisco or they're visiting san francisco they can always stop by the shop some people don't know we have a storefront that they can walk in and they can always stop by and ask us questions we all know about the shop uh they can see what work we're working on um, if, it, if it's on the gallery walls or if it's in our little flat file kind of thing, what clients we're working on. Um, and if they're lucky, they can get a little tour of the back of the shop too. They could take a workshop if they want, try to run those uh, once a month, if not twice a month. Yeah, and they can always like buy prints too on our website. So there's a lot of ways to be interactive uh, with the shop. I think a so. wall of just beautiful letterpress printed things would look nice in someone's house. I think so. Definitely. I, I have a wall full of letterpress seconds and stuff I pulled out of the trash and it looks great. So buy your letterpress stuff from me. Don't pull it out of the trash. <laughs> You're listening to Radio Flam. You're listening to Radio Flam. You're listening to Radio Flam. Challenging the bourgeoisie since 
Sophia Rhodes can be found as Sophia-Rhodes on SoundCloud and at Sophia Rhodes Vocalist on Instagram. You're off and running! With bright eyes shining, with bright eyes shining, with... Here is Coyote Creates with Rise Up, featuring Recorded Freedom. Darkness found its way, stayed here from yesterday. It won't ever fade away I lie here in my room with nothing left to lose And I'm scared that it's too late Mr. President, that's my middle finger in the air I want to know what's your problem with the woman's right to decent health care Here in the Americas, we've been lied to And we've been led by false leaders that look like you And they lied too what you're telling people is that their brown eyes might need to be blue Maybe their hair a slightly lighter hue We know it's not true This can't be true Record of freedom Soldier We know that the people are stressing That American election was a scam Were we expecting the unexpected? We got played between political hands And those uncanny deliberations Our media manifested Created that monster whose power drunk enough to throw chains on children Rearranged our high courts, twisted our schools into stations That might indoctrinate our children and kill our progressive innovations And I can't help this, I've been filled with some hatred I hope you can feel that my hatred has got me waking up But I hope it's not too late yet Waking up inside of the America that I'm in They're selling dreams out to Sheridan Now it's like heroin to the kids Staring in mirrors that'll never clear up Does it make you speculate where we've been? There's no wonder where our trouble started Probing that light for this darkness And blindfolds up from your good intentions And the blind faith has rendered our brothers against us And helpless, dismembered constitutions Congressional illusions Make fools of the fallen What's this world coming to?
Hey everyone, make sure to join us at our live show on May 31st, 11 p.m. We're the last show of the night at Sacramento Pod Festival. Uh, you know, it's going to be a cool shing dang bang. And uh, yeah, we're kicking off the, the last night, but there's going to be two more days of June 1st, June 2nd. Tons of shows, so check it out. It'll be a shing, a dang. Uh, minimal bangs. Yeah. We, we may have some. It depends on if that's what you like, if that's what you're into. Oh, I have the bangs planned. Oh, shit. Radio Flum at Zackbot Fest. May 31st at 11 p.m. We will be alive. We have no idea how to podcast live. But we will do it. We are practicing. So you will be entertained. Info at zackpotfest.com. Radio Flom! Ah, fuck yeah. <laughs> Mary Jones is dialing up for what appears to be a hey day. Where are you? Well, In my room, darling. Joe called. He said he'd be a little late. Say, you look smooth. What can I do for you, of thrilling beauty and wide utility when modern chemistry and modern industry join hands in serving our modern America. I was in the area and thought I'd swing by. Tell me, Mrs. Havisham, who's that young woman over there? You certainly aren't one to waste time, just like your late father. Before he met your mother, of course. She's so stolen. Oh, oh now she's gone and ruined everything. But beauty science could have helped her here, too. As we proceed with our tour of this wonderful world, let's take a look at a few of these better things. You read them all. From products that bring comfort and happiness in your daily life, to those which serve you straight in the march of progress. Let's go to beauty headquarters. Yes, Hollywood. And meet famous Paramount makeup man, Eddie Sam, who thinks that glasses like hairdos can flatter the features. That just like eyebrow and lip lines, the lines of one's glasses can bring out good points, make bad points inconspicuous. Solve this problem can be of tremendous value to the 10 million American women outside of Hollywood who have to wear glasses. Not to play in pictures, but because of eyesight.
businesses were done at Zoo go out for a pleasant evening. Their good grooming habits help them in friendships and in business. For your success depends a great deal on how you look. Well, then there's chemically combined with itself, then with hydrochloric acid and chlorophene in the paint. This produces a solid, tough, elastic product, extremely resistant to oils, solvents, heat, and even sunlight. So this chlorophene rubber, neoprene, is not a duplication of nature's hands, but an entirely new creation of chemical science. Neoprene looks like rubber, acts like rubber, does practically everything that rubber needs, and is actually better than natural rubber for many purposes. Another example of how chemistry improves all
You're about to meet a very unusual man with a most unusual story. 60 Minutes Australia did a story about a man named Darius in New York City who is mildly autistic with Asperger's syndrome. He never knew he had it until recently. He's 52. He has spent his entire life being completely in love with the uh, transit system. So he started when he was about 15 was the first time he got arrested, stealing New York subway trains and buses. And this is what he's done his whole life is steal trains and buses. And for some reason, he never worked for the transit authority, but he would be the ideal employee. He steals the trains and the buses because he's just so in love with them and so in love with that whole life. And he wants to take care of his passengers. He's a very safe driver. He's a very courteous driver. He's very nice. But he keeps getting busted for stealing. And now, at this point, he's been arrested like, I don't know, 300 and some odd times over the past 40 years. He might be going to prison for the rest of his life because the transit authority is just tired of him. And 
it's easier to just put him in jail than it is to give him a job or have him do public outreach or have him be a consultant to help them figure out how they could improve their system. They're just going to throw him in jail for the rest of his life. The first time he was arrested, he was filling in for a man who had a mistress. Correct. How is that not taken into account? It's, it's, it is not, and I always say to them, you know, how do you think he learned how to drive these trains? Which is better, 60 Minutes Australia or 60 Minutes USA? Australia. Thousands have gained natural regularity and broken the laxative habit. So can you. Here's what to do. Every night for one week, take two Carter's little liver pills. Second week, one each night. Third week, one every other night. Then, nothing. It's a great good morning. Brittany, you're my best Australian friend. I'm not Australian. Brittany, you're my best friend. Okay. And I just, I want you to try these sandwiches and see if my husband will like them. I don't have his taste buds. I just need you to try these. Jennifer, I don't have his taste buds. Do you want me to try it? Sure. Here I go. Trying your sandwiches. Okay, don't make fun of my sandwiches. No, that's how I eat. Oh. You're my best friend. I thought you'd do that. I am puppet cookie monster. I have to eat like that. Okay, just just do it. Tell me what you think. Half of the sandwiches didn't go in your mouth. Now look, Jennifer, I am not a sandwich monster. Okay. I am part cookie monster. Okay. Okay? Yes, I get it. So, it definitely does not taste like a cookie. Now, if that's what you're going for... That's what I'm going for. Then good job. It doesn't taste like a cookie. Okay, good. I just, I I really want my husband to like these sandwiches. Why? Because he said he doesn't like my sandwiches, and I said I can make good sandwiches. You know what? It sounds like he's an asshole. You're right. You know what you should make him? A big can of you're leaving him. I don't know. I don't know if Wayne can handle that. You know what? I've met two wonderful people. One of them is a philosopher. Uh The other one, get this, he knows how to drive stick. No way. Yes, why? I love driving stick. I know you do. I know you do. So like... You're right. I've I've been hanging on to this dead weight weighing on my neck. This waggy dead weight weighing on my neck this entire time. All the time. All the time. Sorry. I just wanted to check again to see if they tasted like cookies. They still do. Did you try the one? They came with it. Try the wine. The wine. All right, this definitely does not taste like a cookie. It's cookie wine. I stand by. I stand by what I said. I am part cookie monster, and it definitely does not taste like cookie wine. You've been duped. Like Welsh? Is it Welsh? You're Welsh. I'm not Welsh. <laughs> Radio Flom.
Once again. Paul Ruhan. Germany. Russia. And. The War on Modern Art. If you thought there wasn't a war on modern art. Think again. Hi Steve, it's great to be back on Radio Flom again. I'm calling in from London to talk about the darkest period of art when Stalin and Hitler crushed the great radical art of the 1910s and 1920s. They did that in the 1930s. The one thing that I want to show is the difference between Hitler and Stalin. Hitler crushed art in two years and crushed resistance. He was the ultimate dictator. Um, Stalin would have liked to have crushed art in that period, but it took him a longer time. And it was a lot more difficult for him to achieve it than Hitler. Hitler totally atomized and smashed any opposition. Stalin eventually got to that. But actually, when we look at sort of some, some of the stuff that happened, particularly when we look at Kazimir Malevich, how he survived and how his art continued for a lot of time, even under attack, we see a bit of a different story in the Soviet Union. Both of them are very, very desperate and terrible ends to great flourishings of culture. In, like in, in Germany, that's the Weimar Republic. And in Russia, that is the great sort of 10, 15 years of the beginning of the Russian Revolution, which started in 1917. So let's look at that now. Modern artists, Hitler said, were degenerate, and he vowed to eliminate them. The show he called Degenerate Art was to be more than an exhibition. It was to be their funeral. Degenerate Art, PBS. 1993. I had heard nothing about this degenerate art exhibition. I stumbled onto it. It wasn't on my itinerary because Josephine no Knapp was an American art student traveling through Germany in 1937. So I was walking on the street and I saw the banner over the door. I turned off the landing and saw pictures crowded together, some on burlap some crooked, badly lighted. When we look at the 1930s and art, we look at a dark, depressing time. A time of radical art being smashed. In two great centres where radical art flourished in the 1910s and the 1920s. So when we look at Russia, we see the culmination of Stalin not only taking over the economy, the Communist Party, but also taking over the artistic world as well. So by 1934, not only is he a dictator of Russia, he's also dictating what art can be, and he calls it socialist realism. Socialist realism is basically an idealised view of the Soviet Union, despite the fact there's famine. In all the pictures, peasants and workers need to look healthy. There's lots of uh, talk about realism, but really there's not that much realism. It's all about, you know, the Soviet Union moving forward 
and lots and lots of pictures of Stalin being the great father of the land, the new Red Tsar. And that, that's a culmination of, of something that's taken 10 years between 1924 to 1934 to happen. Hitler comes to power after Wall Street crash in 1929. Inflation goes crazy in Germany. Everyone goes a little bit mad. And the maddest of them all is Adolf Hitler. He comes to power, becomes Chancellor in 1933. He doesn't want democracy. He gets about 33% of the vote, but he uses that to, and state power to consolidate his grip. So 1934 becomes the Führer and he's the leader, the the great, horrible, nasty father of the German people. So by 1934, we have this really sort of dark period, a dark period for society, which is also reflected in art. You can't have radical art in a dictatorship. So what we see in Germany is a culmination of the dictatorship dictating art. So one of the things that we find is that by 1937, there is a great exhibition of German art, what German art should be. And um, when you look at that, the, the great German art exhibition, this horrible, idealist, sort of fascist, Germanic, sort of um, super sort of people. But alongside it, Goebbels, sort of says, well, why don't we have this exhibition? He's the Minister of Propaganda, and he says, why don't we have this other exhibition of sort of what we call degenerate art, art of the 1920s, as a way of showing the horrible problems that we had before Hitler came to power. These horrible problems of radical art, you know, sort of really interesting sort of ab ab abstraction. So what he does is, in 1937 in Munich, he has this exhibition. There's 650 paintings and sculptures. It involves 112 German artists, and it involves some, some great artists. So people like Otto Dix, uh, George Grotz, who was a communist, Kirchner, who's an expressionist, Paul Klee, one of the masters of the Bauhaus and a great abstractionist, abstract artist, Marc Chagall, who many would see as maybe the father or the grandfather of surrealism with his sort of fantasies, Emil Nold. What's really interesting is that Goebbels himself is a great fan of Emil Nold, the German artist, who's an expressionist. But the thing is, Goebbels cannot sort of show his support for Nold anymore because in 1934, Hitler says that, you know, the expressionists and radical artists are basically incompetent cheats and madmen, which is quite a feat to be called a madman coming from Hitler, but that's what he was saying about radical artists. And so there's no place for any variant of modernism in Germany anymore. So a lot of artists then start to leave. Some come to Britain, some go to France, like Kandinsky, and others actually then go to America. Some of them then start off in Europe, and as the Nazis roll across Europe, end up in America. So America gains through this great sort of surge of talent, which actually sort of makes New York and, and America the centre of abstract art after the Second World War. So that's quite an interesting sort of period. So when we look at this sort of exhibition of degenerate art, one of the things that we find out, we said it's, it's sitting right opposite in the same city as the great German art exhibition. And what we find out is in 1937 in Munich is that for every one person that goes and visits the great German art exhibition, two people go and visit the degenerate art exhibition. So what's really interesting Goebbels has actually opened the door 
to actually people seeing probably one of the greatest art exhibitions that, that you could see of modernist art, which includes expressionism, which includes abstraction, all the rest of it. So it's a great exhibition, but actually it becomes a big success in terms of numbers, more than twice, twice as successful as the amount of people that wants to go and see the stuff that Hitler's putting forward. Uh, when we look at, the, you know, they said, one of the things that Goebbels says, what we want to do is actually let people see this horrible heart for themselves of this degenerate art and make up their own mind. Well, they actually don't let them make up their own mind because when we look at some of the themed rooms, let's listen to some of the names because actually it's quite gut-wrenching to actually even say this in um, 2019. So this is some of the rooms. This is, tells you a little bit about the way they were tearing this and creating a narrative about the Weimar Republic and all their enemies. So one of the rooms is called Renovation of the Jewish Racial Soul. So this room's about showing how sick Jewish people are. That's It's not showing that at all, but actually all the slogans are saying, look, Jewish people are sick and their they're soul is. Another room talks about uh, this radical art sort of... Um, centralised um, the Negro racial ideal, so totally racist again. And another room uh, sort of shows how some of the people that really suffered as soldiers in the fir uh, First World War, you know, and expressed themselves in art in sort of quite distorted and quite sort of disturbing ways. And what they said was that room was madness becomes the method. So rather than saying war led to people becoming mad, actually people are mad not because of war, they need more war. So they just point to madness as being a, a problem of the Weimar Republic, not the fact that people came into the Weimar Republic after very traumatic experience of the First World War. Another one talks about the insult to German womanhood. And actually, we need to be a little bit um, careful about that because, um, you know, some, some, some of German expressionist sort of paintings that I've seen are actually sort of quite sort of... Um, Disturbed, you know. You sometimes you see them about women being maimed, and some quite sort of um, horrible pictures of murder scenes where women are. So I understand that, but they're not really worried about that. They're just sort of um, they're, they're trying to say that women are actually should should be sort of healthy and, and mothers. So anything that shows them in any form of liberation is is a negative thing. But in Weimar Germany, where things were really bad and really really poor, there was some really big bad stuff going on, includes of lots of endemic prostitution amongst women so they could feed themselves feed their children and just survive but it's not really attacking that so much but it's attacking the fact that women have in any sort of form of liberation so so that's the rooms of de degenerate art one of the things that all the all the narrative in the press and, um, and amongst the nazi leadership is calling all this art jewish bolshevik what's really interesting is that only six of the artists shown at the exhibition out of 112 were actually Jewish. So Jewish and Bolshevik being pushed together are conflated, even though only six of the artists on show are actually Jewish. What's interesting out of one of the six that is on show is Marc Chagall, and he's not even German. He's actually from Russia, or today it would be Belarus. So to get, even get up the number to six, they have to take someone from another nation to knock it up there. Another thing that also happens is that not only is German art sort of attacked and then sort of taken out of public view, they also start to confiscate other sort of um, modernist artists. So people like Picasso, Mondrian, Kandinsky, 
and other people. So they weren't on show at this exhibition, but they were actually sort of taken out of public eye as being seen as degenerate as well. So we see the German degenerated art exhibition being a great exhibition, but obviously being posed in a way which was a threat to sort of Germanic culture or fascist culture, which they were trying to develop. That, that ends the great sort of art experiment of, you know, the Bauhaus period. The Bauhaus closes down in 1933 and also Germany loses all its sort of great artists to that period. When Stalin came to power by 1927, that wasn't necessarily the only option available. When the Russian Revolution happened in 1917, it was led by the Bolsheviks, led by sort of Lenin, very sort of democratic, elected by sort of uh, workers' councils, soldiers' councils, and peasants' councils. They decided that they wanted to end war and, you know, give land to the peasants and have an eight-hour day for workers. It was tremendous. Uh, it led to equality for women, for equality in law, and also an end to racial discrimination, some of the things that the rest of the world started to try and catch up with afterwards. In fact, uh, you know, it's, it's a tremendous sort of period of optimism, which is sort of shown in the arts. You know, abstract art was invented in Russia as a conscious sort of dolls before the revolution, but it continued afterwards. And actually was encouraged, well, all art was actually encouraged in, in, in the uh, besieged worker state after, from 1917 sort of to when Lenin died in 1924. One of the things was that after Lenin died in 1924, um, there'd been a sort of um, civil war, you know, which was, which was backed by America, which was met by Britain, which was backed by France, and backed by a whole range of other sort of countries. And, you know, somehow little plucky... Russia sort of held on and fought back against sort of some of the old sort of uh, members of the state backed by British tanks and American weapons and the rest of it. So it survived and by 1921 it was just sort of lightning forward. So when Lenin died in 1924 there was uh, powers actually sort of centralised inside the Communist Party because a lot of the most conscious workers and peasants had actually sort of died fighting the sort of civil war so actually quite a sort of tragic sort of situation well there was a power vacuum and out of it Trotsky fought to carry on the legacy of having uh, not just socialism in one country but trying to spread the revolution to other countries Russia's raw materials could be combined with a modern industrial economy which Marx said that's where socialism would happen uh, but on top of that was the, the main opposition was by Stalin Joseph Stalin who argued that they should have socialism in one country. Socialism in the most backward country was not anything that Marx ever thought of or ever wrote about it. So socialism in one country in a period of a, in a country which was really sort of backward wasn't really sort of a goer. So something different was happening there. So over the next three years, they played out a great big struggle in the Communist Party. Eventually Trotsky was expelled from it. There was a great big sort of movement uh, which was really particularly strong in the art colleges to get rid of Stalin and support Trotsky to, to go for socialism at a slow, slow pace. 
and uh, try to sort of spread the revolution. And on the opposite side was that was Stalin sort of saying, well, no, actually what we need to do is actually go forward and do it fast, crush the working class, smash the peasantry into collective farms. Um, and, and he achieved that by 1927. By 1928, he brought in the first five-year plan, which the targets were so sort of higher that the workers' um, organisation was smashed to achieve them. And also, not only was there forced collectivization amongst the peasants, remember, the Bolsheviks had given land to them in 1917. Um, but, you know, that also led to a great big period of starvation in the early sort of 30s. But again, in this sort of period, Stalin had crushed all opposition. Um, his paranoia was, was legendary. He was worried about being attacked from abroad and also being attacked from inside. So one of the first things uh, he started to do was that crack down, not just uh, get political power for himself, but was to go further than that and become a dictator where he controlled all aspects of life in the Soviet Union. So not only the press, the next stage was to go on to uh, take over art as well. The country proclaimed itself unanimous behind Stalin. Stalin, BBC, 1990. Stalin's taste prevailed in every aspect of Soviet life, particularly the arts. So by 1934, he'd introduced a doctrine of socialist realism, which was backed by the Central Committee of the Russian Communist Party, um, which basically said there's one form of art. It must be ide idealised of, of the future. It must be realistic. There must be none of this abstraction or any of these sort of strange forms. And it also must back the party, which basically meant backing Stalin and glorifying Stalin. Uh, one of the things I would like to point out is there's a big difference between what happened in Germany and what happened in Russia. Because in Germany, Hitler came to power and uh, atomized society very, very quickly. He, within two years, you know, he put in his own sort of cultural sort of policy. When Stalin came to power in 1927... He achieved the power under him. Um, it was a bit more messy. You know, it took him seven years to actually sort of uh, put forward his doctrine of socialist realism. He did start to move from it sort of very, very quickly. And already there have been sort of people that are saying, I don't understand this black square, this radical art, this kind of thing. But when we have a quick case study of one artist in particular, if we look at Kazimir Malevich, actually things were, uh, weren't sort of just one way. They went different ways. So in 1926, Kazimir Malevich was in charge of the Institute of Artistic Culture in Leningrad, which was an experimental body looking at teaching people around sort of radical art, primitivism, but also starting to do experiments about making a sort of like architectural cities of the future by creating sort of new forms, which weren't possible in 1926. Uh, that was closed down in 1926 because it was seen as a monastery and that was written about in Pravda as a monastery. It needed to be closed down. The state shouldn't really fund that. So that was closed down. So Melovich was a bit of a was a, a bit of a loss. So you might think already he's lost. Now, actually, in 1927, the Commissar of Enlightenment, which, which was in charge of education and the cultural policy for the Soviet Union, actually said that Malevich was a great artist. And in 1927, Malevich was allowed to tour into Germany and Poland and put exhibitions there. He visited the Bauhaus, met uh, Walter Gropius, uh, had a book published by the Bauhaus and actually sort of um, came back uh, sort of positive, positive from that experience. 
The only thing was, after six months, he was told to come back straight away. And he and um, rather than going to exile, Malevich did go back uh, in 1927. When he got back, he was interrogated for two weeks, asked him what he'd got up to sort of during that period. So you could already see a crackdown starting to happen. But actually, Malevich wasn't out for the can during that period. He carried on. In 1928, um, he decided to go back to sort of painting. He'd given up painting in 1920, got into teaching, looked at sort of changing the way sort of the society uh, could be by bringing art into culture design, those kinds of things. But he went back to art. It was a sign of the times. It was a sign of uh, Stalin becoming more powerful. Although he went back to figurative art, he, you know, did landscapes, he did sort of um, different things of, uh, you know, sort of uh, figures. He still used geometric shapes, he still used the colours that he did, but he included figures as well. You could argue it was a retreat, and it definitely was, but it wasn't really what Stalin was looking for. It wasn't this sort of realistic sort of glorification of uh, Stalin's power. It was like suprematism, uh, colours and shapes match with some form of figuration it was still abstract and the other thing that you find out about it as well is that when you look at the landscapes uh, you, you find sort of houses in quite barren landscapes when you look at the peasants they haven't got faces on them so you could actually sort of see a lot of alienation and you could actually sort of say that Malevich although it was ambivalent was actually attacking what was going on in the sort of Soviet Union by the way he actually sort of painted sort of during that period in 1929, you think, oh, wow, that's positive. He's still carrying on painting and he's still being shown in exhibitions. In 1929, he has his own one-man show in Moscow in the State Tretyakov Gallery, which is the big gallery in the Soviet Union at that time. So, you know, obviously he's still got a lot of support in the artistic field. However, in the same year, he's also put in an exhibition in 1929 and also again in 1930, about bourgeois art, imperialist art of the last epoch before the Russian Revolution. So his paintings of 1915, 1916 and 1917 are seen as, you know, belonging to the old sort of um, culture. They, they're done away with. All this abstract art is seen as something sort of negative and uh, something that needs to be got rid of and it is a part of a decaying Tsarist regime, which it wasn't at all. Malevich himself was very hard on that and sort of said, you know, Actually, we took on the old art, the old culture, and we replaced it with the black square. So he was very clear that his art was about supporting the revolution, despite what was going on at the top of that revolution by the late 20s and by 1930. In 1930, Malevich was arrested and interrogated for three months on an espionage charge, but actually at the end of it, got out of it. it uh, all his friends at that time started to um, get rid of a lot of the letters that he sent um, and letters that, you know, associations with him. So there's a lot of people actually getting rid of this stuff. There was a lot of worry because of what had happened with Malevich's arrest by 1930. So you could say, oh, it's all over then, is it? Um, actually, it's not all over. You know, the twist, the twists and turns during this period continue on. St Stalin may have state power in 1927 and he may have actually uh, consolidated his rule in, inside the Communist Party. But culture kept carrying on a little bit, and Malevich sort of shows this. Painters, poets, novelists, composers were forced to conform. Those who could not fell silent, or were sent to the camps. Industrialization was the new faith. Factories were its cathedrals. 
Its priests were the elite workers who smashed production targets and led the way to the future. So in 1932, Malevich rises again. He's not finished. It's surprising. So they're the 15 years of the Russian Socialist State art exhibition in St. Petersburg. And uh, all, all the different trends are there. A lot of the realistic art that Stalin, you know, is arguing is what we should be doing is, is there. And it's the same year that socialist realism is that we should have this realistic art comes out in 1932. There's, there's the beginning of it. Then there's only one union for artists from 1932. So there's, there's not a diversity of schools. But the same year as that happens in 1932... Malevich has his own room at this exhibition and he, and he shows over 20 paintings, he shows all these architectural models. So he gets his own room during that sort of period in the 15th years of the Russian, Russian art after the revolution. So that's quite amazing. So he's still, he's still not at. And yet there were positive achievements in the 30s. Giant projects like the Moscow Metro exemplified Soviet technology. The next thing you find is that also in 1933 is that Malevich moves to Moscow. When he moves to Moscow, he doesn't uh, follow the rules that he should do, so he doesn't get any rations. So he has to get all his friends and people to provide him with rations and his family with rations because he can't get any sort of food in, in 1933 when he moves to Moscow. He's only got rations for St. Petersburg and he hasn't filled out the right paperwork. That's what happens in a bureaucratic state capitalist country like Russia had become by that period. But when he goes to the, uh, you know, one of the bureaus to look at his rations, he goes there and says, look, my name's Kazimir Malevich, I'm an artist. And the person, the bureaucrat on the front desk says, what, you can't get any food rations? Uh, that, that's really strange because you're one of our great artists. So even people working for the state at that time were surprised that Malevich had problems getting food and they arranged for him to get food so he could stay in Moscow. So even the state then was, you know, like it might be an individual bureaucrat at quite a low level, but could recognise Malevich in 1933 as a great artist and made sure he got the rations that he needed to stay in Moscow rather than go back to St. Petersburg. Um, quite, quite quickly after Malevich develops cancer, in 1935 he dies. And you think, oh, well, what's going to happen there then? Well, actually, his students actually go to the Leningrad um, sort of a Soviet and say, look, great artist Malevich has died. We want a funeral. We want 2,000 rubles. We want a demonstration, uh, you know, like a, a street parade for, for Malevich, part of his funeral, so uh, a funeral procession. And uh, Leningrad Council says, yeah, that's great. Here's the 2,000 rubles. And they allow that to happen. So even in 1935, when Malevich dies, he gets a, a procession and also money from the, the Leningrad Council to pay for his funeral. So he gets a funeral paid from by Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. Uh, also, when he dies, that they give his art to the, Russians, the Russian Museum of uh, Leningrad. And uh, the Russian Museum look after his daughter and his wife um, and give them a pension. So they get a pension from the Russian State Museum for his contribution to Soviet art. So even though socialist realism is coming by 1932, it's been consolidated by 1934. In 1935, Malevich can have a state funeral and his widow and his daughter um, get a pension paid by the Russian State Museum. 
So it just sort of shows, even though Stalin was really powerful, and we all know in history that Stalin was super powerful, the culture and the contribution of a great artist like Malevich might have been attacked over a number, number of, of years from, from the mid-20s, but, but it could still actually have some resonance, even by 1935. So it's not like Hitler, who comes to power in 1933 and crushes it in two years. Culture in, um, in Stalin's Russia continues despite what Stalin says and despite what the bureaucracy wants for a number of years. What happens after 1935 is then actually there's a big killing spree of all the Bolsheviks that led the revolution of 1917, apart from Stalin, of course. And then um, and that includes a lot of artists as well, go to the gulag, get shot and the rest of it. But many of them actually, a lot of them survive and thrive. So uh, the closest person to Kazimir Malevich, who designs his coffin, and you know, uh, is, a, is a guy called Nikolai uh, Surtin, and uh, he actually becomes uh, the chief painter of the state porcelain factory. And, and in, in the late 30s, designs international exhibitions in Paris and New York in the internal parts of it, pavilions for the Soviet Union in those countries going into the sort of 30s. And actually, in 1944, he even gets the Order of Lenin, uh, Nikolai Suertin. So, although Nikolai Suertin actually tones down supremacism, uh, goes with the current of the day, he can survive and thrive in that period. So, the, the radical art was never really sort of killed off. It, it mostly was killed off, but you could still see little glimpses of it, even after 1934. So, what I'd like to really finish off by saying was, uh, Hitler was a terrible dictator, anti-Semite, murderer, so was Stalin, but Stalin was, you know, not as powerful in his ascent, and it took him a long time to crush the culture of the revolution, which had started in 1917 and continued up to 1927. In fact, it took him 1934 to kill it, and even then we saw glimpses of it after that. Um, when we look at back at that period, it's the darkest night, the art of the revolution from, you know, 1917, even a little bit before 1970 of Russia. We can still look at it today. And Malevich today is uh, the art of his, has never been strong as it is today, apart from in the period 19, sort of um, 15 to the, the, mid, the mid 1920s. The Soviet Union turned in on itself, looking no further than its great leader for inspiration. Soviet propaganda made Stalin into a living god, infallible and all-knowing, revered and loved. So, although Stalin won, uh, what happened was Malevich um, survived and Malevich sort of come alive from the late 60s. When, when there was the great movements in the 60s, uh, you find that, that, that suprematism, the works of people like Tatlin came alive again today and they still exist now. So in London, uh, in, in London, in Paris, in, in, in New York, Malaga, in Madrid, you'll find great exhibitions about the art of Malevich and that golden generation of Soviet artists. So Stalin did try to kill it in 1935, but it still exists today. And it's something that, that, that people look back at when it, you know, for, for great art and also to inspire them today. Genuine Modern Radio. This is Radio Flop. Sometimes explained, usually not. Dang it.
love lies bleeding. Love that is dead and buried yesterday. Out of this grave rose up before my face. My recognition, no recognition in his look, no trace of memory in his eyes, dust dimmed and gray. While I, remembering, found no word to say, but felt my quickening, quickened heart leap in its place. Caught afterglow, thrown back from long set days. Caught echoes of all music passed away. Was this indeed to meet? I mind, I mind me yet. In youth we met when hope and love were quick. We parted with hope dead, but love alive. I mind me how we parted when hearts sick. Remembering, loving, hopeless, weak to strive. What this was this to meet? Not so. We have not met. Christina Georgina Rossetti Love Lies Bleeding First published January 1873 Performed by Ellie L. L. Duellen Day May 2019 You're listening to Radio Flom! I like that you fell there, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I am crazy. But you know what else? I don't give a fuck.
Graves with two A's playing I Don't Give a Fuck. You can find Graves on Bandcamp, Facebook, Instagram, and of course on SoundCloud. The best music, we play it all for you. Thank you. 
Also featured on tonight's episode was Tatjana Czerniowska Lama Circuit TKI Media Sophie Traverse and Pipe Dream Manifesto of Of Mars An Album of Growing Concern Volumen 1 Subtitled Shit That I Am Never Gonna Do Anything With Radio Flom is sponsored in part by Your Beating Heart It is an organ that pumps red and blue blood throughout your body, supplying oxygen and nutrients to your tissues all the while removing carbon dioxide and other terrible forms of waste. According to Dr. Lawrence Phillips, a cardiologist at NYU Langone Medical Center who was quoted on LiveScience.com. If your heart is not able to supply blood to the organs and tissues, they'll die. That sounds serious. And it is the perfect metaphor for love. Don't you think? Fixafile.com Carter's Little Liver Pills Diego Val Music At DiegoVal.com LTHMMusic.com and our infatuation level sponsor squadcast.fm remote interviews for professional podcasters if you aren't using squadcast for your podcast interviews what even are you doing anyway okay thanks good night or good morning From Sacramento, the heart of California, and around the world. This has been Radio Flom. Recorded live before a studio. Contributors this week, in order, were... Aceoterica and the Future Past Live. Tristan Kennedy Irvine. Tristicia Langorem. Steve Mehalo. Pablo Sevilla. Jenny Soto. Milk Surface. Mars. Chad André. Vicky Brown. Tatiana Cherniavska. Lorraine Roquette. Laura Marie Anthony. Cody. Adriana Sanchez. Ashley. Maddy. Gianna Gilotti of Vivid Venu. Jenny Lynn. Siblit. James L. Tucker. Sophia Rode Fiturine Gmad V. Coyote Creates Fiturine Gricordi de Freedom. Liama Circuit Fiturine de Sophie Traverse. Mehalo Kitty. Kevin Scott Brown. Jeu de Près. Paul Rouen. Ali Elel de LND. Graav. Cat Cordel. Light Crust Doug Boys. Et. Rendez Tavares.
Also featured were Les annonces de Jason Spear, Audrey Daggett et Cliff Allen. Radio Flom is produced by Steve Mehalo avec Milk Surface comme lui-même. Theme music by Chelsea Davis. Sound design and engineering by Steve Mahalo. Radio Flom is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. However, recordings of contributors or guests of Radio Flom are still protected under international copyright law. Radio Flom contains features for review, opinion, critique, and or artistic transformation and may contain adult content and nudity. Want to be featured on Radio Flom? Drop us a note at www.flom.us slash contact. Flom is a modern art game app, art history resource, faux historical art movement that uses new media to generate interest in art history and education. Flom is an online connection art history, music, and beyond through Tumblr, Instagram, and other social medias. We are all Flomist. You can be too. Donations graciously accepted at patreon.com Flom Us. We are at Flamas on most social medias. Flam is sometimes explained, but usually not. This is Cliff Allen saying thank you for listening, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, do something about it. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. Hello? Steve, Audrey Daggett, I leave and talk to Milk Surface. Guys, you never returned my one phone call. I'm still in jail. You're all jack-offs. <laughs>